brought up to respect the conventions, love had to end in marriage. I'm afraid it did. Betty Davis Chapter 3 There's something Polly said. She said, It's amazing in L.A. how often the very early morning brings clarity. It's true. The low angle of the sun, the freshly brewed coffee, the smell of moist earth and eucalyptus after the sprinklers had gone off. There was a time at the dawn of our relationship when Dave Taylor and I were delighted by each other, a time when he felt vital and I felt cherished. Later, but not that much later, these feelings began to fade. In my gullible twenties, after the birth of my son, it came to my attention that my husband was in the midst of inviting a succession of long-legged lady girls out to restaurants while I let my ends split and my waist expand. I assumed, no, let's say I trusted, that my husband was engaged in an innocent round of PR and that the parade of beauties would recede when I was able to get back to the gym. Actors? Attention-sucking vacuums? Now really. When I began to doubt his fidelity and confronted Dave, he came up with this. You know, I hate wearing my glasses. I just want somebody around to read me the menu. And you're so busy with Jake. In my hormone-addled and sleep-deprived state, I let it slide, or as my friends asserted, I accepted the blame. I only questioned briefly, was Dave a lying son of a bitch? Or were there needs I could no longer fulfill for him, like supplying naive, blind adoration? Thus, we move out of the 1980s and into the 1990s. Days after initiating divorce proceedings, one early morning, I sat outside under a pepper tree, brushed with red blossoms, watching Jake in an inner tube bob up and down merrily in our heated but now threatened aquamarine pool. Suddenly, he broke into one of his radiant, life-altering smiles and said, Daddy! I turned to see Dave arriving unannounced. To say that I was conflicted would be one whopper of an understatement. How was it affecting my son, I thought, these spurts of time with one of us and then another? unpredictable, inconsistent. Perhaps that was the nature of separation and divorce. My stepchildren were surviving, but not brilliantly. The boy, as noted earlier, was 10 years younger than I was, the girl 12. Isabel, my stepdaughter, had rejected the whole damn Hollywood-infested lot of us and insisted from the age of 13 on creating her own tribe at an equestrian-oriented girls' school in rural Virginia. Her interests seemed to belong to another era, pre-industrial. She and her classmates woke at dawn and tended to the animals before class. They had impeccable courtly southern manners, and their peach-down flesh and cotton-poly clothing were scented faintly and at all times with ivory soap and horse manure. Andrew, my stepson, before matriculating at UCSD, had spent a year at a facility in Colorado getting weaned from Adderall. ADHD was an early diagnosis after his parents' divorce. 
In high school, he had gotten straight A's, was nearly six feet tall, and when he dropped down to 125 pounds and couldn't keep his gangly limbs still, his parents finally clued into the fact that he was abusing. Lydia Price, my mother, and an East Coast school administrator, had been the first to spot the problem. Give me a break, Lydia had said. They're amphetamines. I see it all the goddamn time. A whole generation of over-medicated children. Do not get me started. In Boca Lupo, mom and dad on Prozac, and you can bet their kids are on Ritalin or Adderall. That may not have been a direct quote, but it was pretty close. My stepchildren were nearly the same age I was when I met their father. That was kind of a disturbing thought. I peered at Jake and tried to remember my mindset of many years ago. Having a kid put introspection on the back burner. But I could still grasp the excitement I felt coming out to California. I saw it as an opportunity for change. I was aware at 19 of my looks, and I both took them for granted and thought of them as a bonus. Hell, when the transition from awkward 13 to attention-grabbing 14 happened, it shocked nobody more than me. I rarely wore makeup because I didn't have to. I dressed in dark blues and greens because it made my eyes more arresting. At that age, I figured if you had a gift, you might as well use it to your best advantage. But it wasn't in my half-Yankee spirit to flaunt it. So I, who hadn't had the discipline to finish my schooling, knew my looks and perhaps my affable, impressionable, spontaneous, and somewhat opportunistic nature had landed me right here on a chair looking out over a movie star's swimming pool. But my life was out of balance. I had to do more. I wanted to protect my son. I started thinking hard about what was good in my relationship with Dave and had to cast back several years to find it. In the beginning, while he was still married, we had trysts at exclusive inns, like the one in Montecito where John and Jackie Kennedy had honeymooned. The property was large, down a tree-lined lane, and private. Our accommodations were ample, a cottage that was bigger than the house I'd grown up in. It had a full kitchen and formal dining room, but Dave had arranged to have meals delivered with a discreet knock at the door. For all the management knew, Dave Taylor might have been holed up with a stack of scripts and a bottle of booze. We never saw anyone our entire stay. We left the property in Montecito only after dark. The more I thought about it, the happiest, earliest memory I had of Dave and myself together consisted of having sex, hiding out and having sex, clandestine, exciting sex. During that time, I felt I was the center of his universe, the sensate center of his universe. Maybe not the best basis for a lasting relationship. Dave was glaring at me. It was hard to resolve that twisted mouth with the lips that used to nibble from my chin to my belly button. He barked. I said I was going to take Jake to the Griffith Park Zoo. Why isn't he ready? I was having trouble keeping my temper. Because you didn't say anything to me about it. You, you never listened to me. I did too. What are you, 12? I mocked Dave, fully realizing I was not achieving the more nor the balance I had recently been contemplating. I did too. 
I glared back, feeling my mood flare. I wanted to zap him from the face of the earth. I think you're getting me confused with the help. I, of course, had fired the nanny he was betting when my marital resolve finally broke, but there was no guarantee that Dave hadn't found a replacement. Currently, he was renting an apartment in a tower on Wilshire. He liked to brag that he saw members of the Hearst family and Sean Connery riding in the elevator. Considering his claims about his failing eyesight, that was something of a feat. Dave turned and indicated our son with two upturned palms jutting toward the pool. Would you just please? I called to Jake. Honey, you want to go with Daddy and see the monkeys? Go with you and Daddy and see the monkeys, was the immediate response from the pool. Dave muttered under his breath and smiled so his son couldn't see or hear. Bitch! I hissed, employing the same faux smile. Fuck you, Dave. We'll be ready in ten minutes. You wait outside with the car. No, wait. I'll drive. You still wait outside. I drained the ice-cold, sugary silt from the bottom of my coffee cup and found it surprisingly delicious. Hmm. As long as we love each other, everything will be fine. Did I really say that? In California, love generally lasts less than ten years. After ten years, the lower-earning spouse can demand alimony. Another issue to keep in mind is child support. If joint custody, a 50-50 arrangement, is made, neither parent need tender additional funds for the children beyond those monies spent while the children are in their care. Say a wealthy man is married to a younger college dropout. Say the marriage lasts less than 10 years and results in the birth of a boy. Then the aforementioned wealthy man would be strongly advised to insist on joint custody effectively kicking the college dropout to the curb and protecting the wealthy man's holdings intact. That was Dave's plan, but I, at 29, eight years to the day after I was married, had an excellent divorce attorney. Lucky me, because one of the nasty tricks Dave Taylor had played was this. He had consulted every lawyer in Beverly Hills, Century City, even as far as Pasadena, though he had no intention of retaining their services, a ploy to keep me from being able to hire an unbiased advocate, prior knowledge, conflict of interest, something along those lines. He must have forgotten about Polly, who, after a meritorious couple of years working at the DA's office, had been recruited by a top-line legal firm in downtown Los Angeles. I appeared for my first conference with Polly in unstructured layers and ballet flats, twisting the wedding band on my finger and worrying if I'd be able to afford sending my soon-to-be first grader to a private school called Crossroads in Santa Monica. The last time I'd seen Dave, he'd shrilled something about being 50, no longer box office, and suggested I remove myself to some Los Angeles outpost like La Cañada, where the public schools were still fine. Polly dismissed this notion of public education, straightened her Armani jacket, and stood firmly on her lofty high heels. Billy, she said, infidelity is no longer an actionable offense. But is Dave seeing anybody? The nanny, 
I replied. God, is he lazy. Good. Let's nail this motherfucker to the wall. There followed a discussion of assets, investments, real estate, bank accounts, bills, salaries, and monthly budgets. I repeatedly mumbled something about a financial manager and an accountant to which Polly would click her Mount Blanc pen, nod, and proceed to the next order of business. Finally, Polly turned to my immediate plans. Would I, for instance, complete my degree? And if so, and Polly could not stress enough the value of a degree, and an advanced degree at that, if so, Dave Taylor would be on the hook for tuition and expenses incurred in pursuit of that degree in addition to child support. A PhD or a master's would be vital for me to provide for my boy and myself in the future. Polly beamed. When she smiled, she looked particularly lovely. How about USC? It's very, very expensive. Going back to school was the furthest thing from my mind. The furthest thing. But what would I major in? Film. You now have excellent connections. I wondered what those connections consisted of. Dave and I had entertained frequently. I had sat through one Academy Awards ceremony where Dave had gripped my hand so tightly that when his category came up, I could feel my bones bruise. I had befriended other wives of who chauffeured their kids to nursery school and kindergarten, and recently the wife of a of a director, or they were a writer-director team, she wrote, he directed, had taken a shine to me and suggested we both book facials at the same esteemed salon in West Hollywood and chat. You know Patsy Morris? I asked Polly. Patsy Morris and her husband Roland had recently hit box office gold in a comedy starring Goldie Hawn and Bette Midler. The crux of the funny had to do with the fact that they were both detectives and they both suffered from PMS. Oh, oh, the PMS PIs! Polly chuckled, and then in a crescendo that resulted in tears running down her cheeks, she continued in a gale of laughter. Do you think this gun makes my ass look fat? She laughed so hard the next words came out in a rasping gasp. Does this gun make my ass look fat? It never ceased to amaze me that Polly had a humor hair trigger. Polly was usually so composed, and in an instant, she could dissolve into a raucous, hooting, hand-fluttering howler. Polly gulped down the last laugh and smiled. That's the one, I said. Oh, I love that movie, said Polly. Now, seriously, I need you to think about instances in which you were instrumental in furthering Dave's career. Judges like to see why a devoted wife deserves the big bucks instrumental. He was famous before I married him. Think hard, Billy. There has to be something, urged Polly. I folded my hands in my lap and glanced out the large plate glass window of Polly's tower office. I could see across downtown, past the freeway, to the Hollywood sign. Suddenly, I remembered a dinner at an exclusive sushi bar that sat 12. I recalled a refined and delightful chef in formal Japanese kimono who, when receiving my husband and ten of our friends with intricate morsels of food flecked with gold leaf, 
had poured generously from his personal bottle of 20-year-old scotch. That was after our party had polished off several bottles of sake. I felt it a personal triumph that I was able to sit through a seafood dinner without gagging. It was our fourth wedding anniversary. I had shared my aversion to all things aquatic with Dave earlier in the relationship, and apparently he hadn't been listening. No matter, it was the thought that counted. And then things started to go screwy. I drank from an endless cup of vegetal green tea frothed with a bamboo whisk by a waitress who was permanently stationed by my elbow. I was trying to appreciate the aesthetic, but I found the level of personal attention unnerving. The wives on either side of me sat ramrod straight in silk charmeuse or crisp linen, hair perfectly tinted, each smiling tightly with glossed carmine lips while our husband's speech patterns devolved into slurred ramblings. The bill came to about $350 a person, including Tip. Dave lunged first and slapped down his American Express card to the drunken and loud objections of the other alpha males. The rising fog of testosterone clouded my vision. This evening had little or nothing to do with our anniversary and everything to do with Dave's place in an unholy pecking order. Raving drunk on our anniversary and after 20 courses of fucking fish, I was so angry I could barely speak. By the time the valet had driven our car around, I could not unclench my jaw. Dave was so swizzled his head wobbled horribly on his neck, and he kept giving me directions to our home as if I were a cab driver. That's it. Right, right. Take it right here. That's where I live. See? He pointed and poked at my eyebrow. It took everything I had to keep my hands on the wheel. That one. That one's my house. Once inside, I assisted as he lurched into our bedroom and then our bathroom where he was loudly and copiously sick. He wove back to our room and pivoted wildly. Hannibuke! I grabbed him and redirected him away from the Navajo carpet. Finally, when his erratic swaying and spewing had become too much, I repeatedly yanked him away from mirrors, windows, and large plate glass shower doors. I barricaded him in the bathroom. After, I had strapped a bicycle helmet on his head. Later that morning, pushing a bureau away from the door, I found Dave asleep in his helmet, curled up by the toilet. He hadn't a single memory of the previous night. Well, I said, once, I guess I probably saved his life. Any witnesses? Jake was 18 months old. I don't think that counts. What about the babysitter? Polly asked. Nanny? The nanny? She was that grad student from Berlin. I lost track. I returned to twisting my wedding ring. I considered for a moment and wondered if my hands were beginning to look old. Old lady hands. Maybe that's why Dave was sleeping with the ex-nanny. Olivia? I stopped myself immediately. My hands were fine, smooth and long and fine-boned. Dave was sleeping with the nanny because he could. Hmm. And Dave? Would you say he was an alcoholic? Would I? No, he drinks as much as anybody else, I stated. 
Are you sure? asked Polly. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.